Good morning. A few years ago, I learned about something called the Mandela Effect. Does anybody know about this? A woman was at a conference in 2009 when she and several others engaged in a conversation about the death of Nelson Mandela in the 80s. They talked about what the experience of his death was like. There was a collective memory. But at some point, the woman realized that Mandela was not dead. In fact, he lived several more years after this experience. Since then, several more collective misrememberings have been described as an occurrence of the Mandela effect. For example, many remember a movie called Kazam, where Sinbad played a genie. Many remember the words of Snow White as mirror, mirror on the wall. The words in Star Wars as Luke, I am your father. And they swear they've seen maps where New Zealand is northeast rather than southeast of Australia. Friends, all of this is wrong. (laughs) But people are wrong all the time. The Mandela effect isn't interesting because people are wrong. It's interesting because they're wrong together. Our story for today is a story about people being wrong together. It is, in a sense, an example of the people misremembering what God's intentions were for them. But the analogy with the Mandela effect breaks down. That's relatively harmless. The people of God in Acts 11 didn't just misremember. They allowed their misunderstanding, their misremembering, to disrupt their relationships with others within the church. But we'll talk more about that later. First, let's recap a bit. Acts 11 retells the story of Acts 10. This is, of course, the story of Peter's vision, where foods that he considered unclean came down from the sky. God said something like, eat up. But Peter proclaimed at this point that he had never, and this is a big claim, he had never eaten unclean foods. When Peter says this, God responds, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Soon, the real reason for this vision emerges. This is not just so Peter can eat shellfish. While Peter is thinking about his vision, and the narrative says that he does this quite a lot, the Spirit tells him that men are looking for him and that he should go with them because the angel that appeared to Cornelius needs him to find Peter. In Acts 11, Peter doesn't recount again his message to Cornelius. He just says kind of what happens. But let me fill in the details. The Spirit comes upon these people when Peter says this. Listen carefully. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. This is what Peter learned. And this is precisely the point that the people in Acts 11 are going to argue with him about. What they misunderstand is that even though God has given incredible gifts to the Jewish people, he has declared them to be his people. This does not mean that he doesn't care about others. Additionally, it definitely doesn't mean that when it comes to following the law or holiness, that the ends justify the means. 
for them, the Jewish people in Acts 11 at present, the means was the exclusion of the Gentiles from fellowship. This is not the will of God. God's favor is for all those who do his will. His favor is for those who do his will. Okay, sermon over. (laughs) Well, after hearing that, I would imagine that most of us would respond in something like two ways. On the one hand, some of us will ask, wait, how do I know what God's will is? You say that knowing that you want to do what is right, but you're worried that you might not be as attuned to God as you'd like to be. On the other hand, some of us will approach this in a slightly different direction. You'll say, I know the will of God, but those around me don't. You think I'm on the right path, but you can't seem to convince those around you. These dilemmas, these questions represent an important challenge for us. Sometimes Christians, sometimes we, disagree about what God's will is. But we must continually seek the will of God anyway. So in the rest of our time together, I will outline some ways that we can be assured that we are seeking God's will, or at least we're heading in the right direction. I want to focus especially on how this relates to unity within the church. But before I begin, I want to clarify that I'm going to talk about this as a corporate need to seek the will of God. This is because, at least in my understanding, we should be better together. But none of this is to say that any of us as individuals are exempt from acting in faithfulness. Each of us should seek God's will for ourselves individually, too. But Acts 11 is about a community discerning God's will. And I think it has something important for us here at Church of the Redeemer. So first... For us as a community to be able to seek the will of God, we have to listen to God. I would be an absolutely horrible friend, wife, mother, colleague, professor, if I simply did what I wanted with no input from any other people, even if it was in the name of love. In the same way, to know how to best love God, we have to listen to God. And I do acknowledge that this is kind of the like, duh, or well, obviously point in the sermon. But it really is an important one. Because this passage recounts God speaking to several individuals in really striking ways. Peter, Cornelius, those in Cornelius' house, they heard surprising things. And they listened. Of course, one of the most important ways that God speaks to us is through his word. But as we worship, as God prompts us, even in seemingly ordinary or mundane moments of our life, we must listen then too. This is where I'm really grateful for our rhythms as an Anglican church. Our liturgies surround us with scripture, especially when we engage in worship together and in the daily office. And our liturgies ideally, are practiced with others in our church. I've had many experiences in the last few months of delivering the daily office and seeing the faces of dear friends and hearing God's words differently because I imagine what they must sound like to my person that I love. 
in a similar way in this difficult season in our church. My sincere hope has been to try and hear our services, what we preach, read, pray, with the ears of those in pain, especially those in pain who have reported what has been described as the misconduct of our rector. Even though those who reported are unknown, I want to hurt with them and to hope with them that through the procedures put in place by our bishop, that God will bring true and lasting justice. This is justice that transcends what I personally think is fair. This is a way that I listen as a part of a community. I want to make sure that my ears aren't just for me. This brings me to my next point. In order to seek the will of God, we must work together. And more specifically, we must work together in order to love God and love our neighbors well. It's really important to add that purpose statement because collaboration doesn't always work out super well. Um, In fact, we see a lot of mobs in scripture, Um, even right here in Acts. There was even a horde in Acts 7, if we remember. Some of the Jewish leaders said that Stephen had spoken poorly of the temple and the law and had promised that Jesus would destroy them. At this time in Acts, this was not a dispute between two distinct groups. This was a disagreement among the Jewish people, some who accepted that Jesus was the Messiah and some who didn't. Their charge, those who were angry, was that Stephen was leaving behind the Jewish teaching. This is why his speech is so spectacular in terms of its aim. How does he share the story of Jesus? By situating that story firmly within the story of the Jewish people, of his people. He shows precisely how that story connects with their present moment. When Stephen gets to Moses, he slows down. He highlights parts of the story that we would expect, the burning bush, that's kind of a big deal. But then he pulls on pieces that we may not always remember. A consistent thread in what he highlights is the rejection of Moses, discord within the people of God. We must work together too. But history, including the history recounted in scripture, tells us that people are not necessarily better together. But we must be. The example in Acts 11 is better. The people approach Peter and they are legitimately angry. They had a disagreement about how best to live out the expectations of God in the law. But Peter explains to them how God has revealed his own misunderstanding that they share. He's revealed this misunderstanding to him. People have seen visions. Angels have appeared. The voice of God has been heard and miracles have happened. This story has been confirmed. But what I also appreciate about this story, because those things are things experienced elsewhere. Some had this experience, and the others trust their testimony. They were able to learn how to love the family of God better because they listened to Peter. See, listening is important. I'm so grateful for our church because I have learned with you. I have learned new things about scripture and Christian history from our gifted preachers and teachers, and my goodness, we have many. I've learned new things about Christian practices and holy rhythms 
I've learned about parenting and gardening and baking. I'm not sure that I have been in a church that has loved me better. Even when that means saying, Madison, take a beat. Or something like, I'm angry with you. This brings us back to my comments from before. I mentioned that many of us assume that we might know God's will, but the problem is that others don't. But not a single one of us knows the mind of God. I'm not the judge of faithfulness. (laughs) If I were, God help us. (laughs) I need each of you to help me to know what I don't know. I need you to help me see what I don't know and what you say and what you do. We will disagree about what it means to follow God well. We will make different decisions about how to spend our money, what shows to watch, how much to pray, and how, or how we should do it. We will absolutely disagree about what love looks like, especially when there's been wrong. One way that we see this last tension play out in a kind of lower stakes situation is parenting. Let's talk through a scenario. A parent breaks or makes a rule, a child breaks the rule. What happens next? For as many people as there are in this room, there are many answers to this question. And probably some of you are like, I need more details. (laughs) That's precisely the point. But this is the case in harder and more complex situations too. From conversations that I have had, it seems that most of us assume that our church's hard season is almost over. And we really want that. We've been in a season of grief, uncertainty, anger, and pain. And while we wait for information to be collected in reliable and sensitive ways, we understandably have wanted to know more. But we needed to give space for all the stories to be heard. Because we only want to do this once. This season has been frustrating and painful, but this is pain that our body needed to heal. And while this has lasted far longer than we hoped, these things take time. This is why I would strongly encourage you not to assume that our investigation has been mishandled because it has been slow. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, Let me remind you that in the upper Midwest, they waited six months for an investigation to start. But I recognize that even a day of this has been too long for those waiting for justice, for us waiting for information. But the time is coming. But even then, our hard season will not be over yet. We might assume that we'll see the reports, we'll do what needs to be done, whatever that is, and move on. We will learn whatever has been reported. And at that point, we might disagree about what love and justice looks like. It will be hard. We will have a lot of questions about how this has unfolded, and we will undoubtedly have many things to process. We will learn about people. 
either as we learn about past actions or as we watch others react. This will be a telling season for us. I hope that what you learn about me is that I'm committed to loving and serving God. I think that's the thing that we all need to be committed to revealing in this season, is that we are for God first and foremost. For that to be true, I must be generous in my critiques and strong in my affirmations. I need to be generous to and strong for those who have reported, whose identities will likely remain unknown forever. From the beginning, I have tried to picture these people present in every conversation that I have with people in our church because I love each of you, and I cannot stand the possibility that I might say something that would cause you further pain. I also need to be generous to and strong for our leadership. I hope that each of us reads what is put forward with open minds and prayerfully hears what we learn from the reports of our independent investigator and accept the recommendation of our bishop. We cannot let this rot our hearts and destroy this beautiful church. All of us, every single one of us, will be disappointed, angry, and devastated. But we will not feel these things for the same reasons, and we need to come to terms with that. Even so, we have to work together. Listen to others and hear where they are at and why they are feeling what they're feeling. Only then will we come through this. This brings me to my final point. We have to admit when we're wrong. This point, of course, builds on the last two. How do I know if I'm wrong? I listen to God, and I live and work with others. This is a related point from the story in Acts 11. Peter is the first to realize and then admit that he is wrong. Then the other Jewish people, those who initially were criticizing him, were next. People are wrong all the time. I am wrong all the time. That's not exceptional. But what seems to be exceptional from my experience is for someone to be willing to admit it. This is something that I have tried to normalize in my classes. I do my best to admit my mistakes. I've apologized to my classes for saying things poorly and sensitively and for getting information wrong. I'm in the education business, and so if we all knew everything, then I would definitely be out of the job. And I would definitely be reading fewer books. And sorry to my mover for having to lug this around. (laughs) So friends, I want to remind you that we as individuals and we as a church are probably wrong about things. And we need to make sure that we create spaces where we can hear that. For us as a church, we can initiate conversations with those who are new, maybe with those who visit and do not join us, those who leave and those who remain. I want to reiterate that this isn't necessarily the job of our clergy, though let's loop them in. But we as as members have a responsibility to make sure that this is a place that serves all people, especially us well. Along these lines, for our personal growth, I would encourage each of you to find at least one person who will tell you the truth, a friend who will be honest when you ask, did I handle this correctly? 
Or am I missing something? I have a friend who told me several years ago that he values honesty more than anything in friendship. He thinks if you're talking to someone and you cannot say what you are feeling, then you are not speaking to a friend. Let's be people who can hear the truth, brothers and sisters. Let's be friends. And if what we hear is that we are wrong in our understanding and our practice, please, let's acknowledge that. At this point, let's double back and think about what is at stake here in Acts 11. What could have happened if the leaders didn't listen to Peter? I recognize that Acts 11 might not be a text that you think about a lot. In fact, sorry if any of you were really hoping we'd be back in Revelation. (laughs) Acts 11 is important, though. It's one of several passages in the New Testament that tells us that early Christians disagreed about how to follow God in some really big ways. Some of the Jewish believers thought that everyone needed to follow the law and especially be circumcised if they were going to be faithful. They were so concerned about the practices of non-Jewish believers that they didn't think that Jewish believers should enter the homes of non-Jewish people or have meals with them. Churches were in homes. Meals were a huge part of their culture at that time. To say that Jewish people couldn't enter the homes of non-Jewish people would be to say that non-Jewish people would be perpetual guests and never hosts in the faith. And that's if the Jewish believers invited them at all. The people were angry with Peter, and this will not be the last time. In Acts 15, they will discuss these matters again. And we see clear indications that these issues cause serious problems in the churches that Paul addresses in his letters. This is a matter of serious disagreement within the people of God. But these disagreements are normal. God gives us space within scripture to form our own conclusions. But it shouldn't be normal to create divisions within the people of God on the basis of these discussions, to erect barriers on the basis of ethnicity or class as they did here. And it is sinister to create divisions through anger and gossip. So, brothers and sisters, I pray that we follow the example of these Jewish believers in Acts and join together to serve God well. To do that, we need to listen to God and to his children, to work together to love well, and to learn from our mistakes and move forward together. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we pray for your holy Catholic Church. Fill it with all truth, in all truth with all peace. Where it is corrupt, purify it. Where it is in error, direct it. Where in anything it is amiss, reform it. Where it is bright, strengthen it. Where it is in want, provide for it. Where it is divided, reunite it. For the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen.